Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 16. I'm your host, Dan Holzman, and today I'm joined in conversation by the great juggler, mentor, and Cirque du Soleil performing star, Stephen Rigatz. This podcast is brought to you by the International Jugglers Association. Information about this great group of jugglers can be found at juggle.org. Assisting me as engineer is my wife, Karen Holzman. Now sit back, enjoy this very informational, educational, entertainment-filled podcast with the great Steve Rogatz. Today I have the pleasure of talking with one of my favorite jugglers to talk with. He's a, a great juggler and a deep thinker. All the way from Torku, Finland, where he's on tour with Cirque du Soleil. Welcome to the podcast, Mr. Steven Rigatz. Hey, Dan. Good to hear your voice again, buddy. Hey, thanks, thanks. We have had a lot of great talks over the years because I think we're both guys who not only like juggling, but we like talking about juggling. We like sort of the philosophy, the 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 background of juggling. We both have had like a love affair with juggling. So let's start with where did your love affair start? I mean, how did you first become aware of juggling? What was your initial thoughts about it? And how did you start to learn this great art? Oh, okay. Well, you're, 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 setting, you're setting me up for this because I don't know if you remember or not. Okay. But the first First place I saw performing juggling, the first place that I got it into my head that I wanted to do this was at the Minnesota Renaissance Festival, and it would have been 1981 maybe, mm -hmm. which might have been the Spini brothers' first year performing together there. Okay. And I remember seeing you guys... You probably remember him, Fudd, the Incredible Juggler. Yeah, you know, I mentioned Fudd on a recent podcast, and people are like, Fudd? <laughs> but he, he was, uh, he, at one year in Minnesota, you were right, we started at the, I think, 1981, and they used to have so many jugglers at that same they festival. They did. Uh, I think John and Owen were there. I don't think it was Owen. It was John or with a guy John named and, Kai yeah, right. Fields. John and yeah, it was John and um, yeah Kai Fielstad. They were called the uh, three of clubs. Three of clubs. There was another guy too. I guess there was three of them. So Tui, Tui, yeah, Tui. Tui Wilson. Tui Wilson. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I saw all you guys at the at this fair, and my my family lives up in the area. Uh, my sister's side of the family, and we visited every summer. And for some reason, that summer it was, it was uh, like my junior year in high school, and that that, that summer I was. Uh, I was kind of bored with the fair because I'd been several years in a row. So I just started going around and watching the, the, the shows, and I got really captivated by the juggling and went from juggler to juggler to juggler and just did them round robin and saw several of the shows three, four times in the day. And it, it was like a light switch because I went home that, that night and uh, I taught myself how to cascade with, with three rocks in my sister's yard. From from day one, I had knew that I wanted to use juggling as a means of performing. Because in high school, I was involved in the theater programs and sang in choirs and that sort of thing, and was looking for a vehicle to to get me up on stage. So you were self taught, so, though. You didn't learn from a book or just by watching us and then or watching the other jugglers. No, just going no, home and figuring was, it out. Yeah, yeah, I was I was self taught and kind of isolated. Of course, then I, I started trying to look around to to find information about it. Of course, this was 
well before the internet. And, mm-hmm. uh, one of my first uh, first places to look was, of course, through my high school guidance counselor, who put me in contact with Hovey Burgess out of New York, who uh, got me in contact with the IJA, and I joined right away. I got the first magazine, Juggler's World. Um, if I think about it long enough, I'll be able to picture which issue it was by the cover. But the pertinent, the pertinent little story about this is on the back cover of Juggler's World back then was an ad for Todd Smith juggling props. And the, the photo is a full page photo. And he had all of the juggling props sort of displayed in a, in a little collage. And I was intrigued by, by the devil stick because I had... I had seen one at the, the, the fair, but I didn't really pay attention to it because I was really focused on the, the toss juggling. But that devil stick, that looks like something I could, I could build. And so uh, uh, using that back cover, I uh, delved into my first juggling prop construction project. And I made myself a devil stick using a dowel rod and I wrapped carpet in a tapered fashion so that it would be the right shape. And then I taught myself devil stick with that thing. Why this is pertinent is because uh, uh, several months later, after I've been practicing every day, doing juggling with tennis balls and working with my devil stick, I found out about a local juggling festival about two, two and a half hours away from my hometown up in Fort Wayne, Indiana, I think it was. I I live in uh, southern Indiana down in Bloomington. Mm -hmm. And I went up to the juggling festival. And boy, that was an epiphany, tell you what, walking into that gym with all these guys juggling clubs i didn't have clubs at the time and they had balls and, and there were these devil sticks and i saw them and i was just i was really surprised because the devil stick that i had made i had a picture and i based it off of the picture but i didn't have any notion of scale oh. i had no idea how big it was right and the one i made was only 12 inches long oh so the foot and I had learned with it. So when I did devil stick, it went really, really fast. And I saw a Dubai devil stick. And these things are like 26 inches. They're made out of wood. And oh, my Lord, it was so slow and smooth. And it made that clicking sound. And the first time I picked one up, it just was so much easier than this tiny little toy that I had constructed because I didn't know how big the thing was based on a single photograph. So yeah. the, uh, you know, the, the IJA and that whole juggling scene at that point really opened opened the world up for me and uh, I started I started going to the regional festivals and uh, eventually made my way to the uh, first IJA festival for me was in SUNY Purchase and it was a graduation high school graduation present the trip given to me by my parents to go up to New York and did you uh, did and you that, did you stay and study with uh, the group up there like Fred Garbo and uh, Michael Motion I think and Bob Berkey oh. I, I got to study with those guys eventually, but the three of them were performing together in a stage show called Fool, Fool's Fire. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were in the area at the same time as the juggling festival, and I got to go see their performance with my, my parents. And it was, an, it was a, a, an amazing experience to see those guys working in, uh, well, I would say in their prime, but... Uh, when they were younger, and the whole genre that they were working in was very, very exciting to me. It was it validated juggling, it validated variety theater, 
what uh, eventually would be coined as New Vaudeville at the time. And I just loved that show. Oh, it was beautiful. Michael Motion's crystal ball routine, seeing that live back then was was really an astounding experience. Fred Garbo, I eventually took many, many weeks worth of workshops from from that guy. And he's he's proven to be a uh, one of my main my main teachers over the years. And Bob Berkey, I've only done a couple of things with him, uh, but actually know his brother a little bit better, Doug Berkey, because both of them have worked out of the celebration barn up in Maine that I've I've uh, done a lot of classes with. And then how did you start your professional? Did you always think about it as, like you say, a performing art? So as soon as you learned, you thought, okay, I'm going to try to do this creatively as a performance. Where did you start your performing career? Uh, junior year high school talent show. That would have been my very first attempt. Were to you using your mini devil stick or did you already have I, your... I probably was. Um, I don't remember the details other than I probably used a lot of stolen material from that Renaissance fair. It was a, an experience that got me, definitely got me going because I wasn't very popular in high school. I wasn't unpopular. I was, I was a bit of a, an enigma to most of my peers. Getting up on stage and being loud and doing stand-up, you know, stand-up comedy integrated with juggling and trying to be funny and just being brash was such a contrary to my normal sort of everyday disposition that it was it was quite liberating for the otherwise quiet Steve to to, to get up and be very very bold and uh, outgoing. So initially, your experience was with the talking jugglers of the Renaissance Fair. Was that how you saw yourself going? Because it seems to me like your career has been mostly based in sort of more theatrical circus. Did you no, I, I, a I, comedy I, juggler first? Oh, yes. You guys were my inspiration for a long time. I loved it. As soon as I saw Edward Jackman, man, that, that I just thought he was the best. I always laughed at his stuff. I, I loved the way that he integrated difficult technique. You know, the, the, the juggling that he did at the time was very hard. And he, he was funny. He was energetic. He was uh, relevant at the time. Yeah, that's know, one funny very, thing about... Very, very, uh, about juggling is that if you look to the jugglers of the 80s, the comedy jugglers, like technically juggling has improved a great deal. I mean, the number of five club jugglers or seven club jugglers has grown exponentially. But if you look at like the comedy jugglers from the 80s, it's hard to say that comedy juggling is that much better than guys (laughs) like Dan Rosen or Edward Jackman or Michael Davis. So it really has been a bit more stagnant than the technical juggling. Right. Uh, I would agree with that, except for the Michael Davis part. But because he's he's still I think he's still relevant. I think oh, no, no, I'm not saying going. relevant. I'm just saying right. it hasn't really improved the way. I mean, of course, comedy is hard to improve. But like technically, we've had so many more technical jugglers. But you can't really go like, oh, we've had so many more comedy jugglers who built on the comedy jugglers of the 80s. And then went down. The, for, yeah, the format hasn't changed much for that. No. I would call it stand up juggling. You know, yeah, I always look at Michael Davis as kind of the template for stand up oh, yes. juggling. Oh, yes. No, he's. And uh, he, he was just at, Mo- at uh, Moisture Fest this, this past season. And uh, I'm sorry I missed him. Yeah, but, no, I, uh, he was there with the last week. I was there with my partner and as a solo. And that's where I talked with Jay Gilligan for the last podcast. Right. It's a wonderful uh, vaudeville festival in Seattle called Moisture Festival. <laughs> I love that name. We both talked about Moisture <laughs> Festival being it's very enjoyable 
but we both wish a certain thing that it maybe, <laughs> maybe paid a little bit better. Yeah, that's that's okay. I, I, I signed the contract anyway, so. Well, there are certain I mean, jobs I think that that offer you something different than just purely oh, yes. the the professional experience, the chance to work with other performers, the chance to be in front of a, a knowledgeable audience, and to really what they call the hang is a, a very right. important thing to us performing jugglers, especially ones who work by themselves a lot or not with other jugglers. The chance to be with other jugglers, like I was with Jay at uh, the last one, and I've worked with Pat McGuire at some or whatever, the chance to hang out with other jugglers is just always a, a thrill for, for us more individual types. Sure. Well, I would say, as, as, as I'm thinking about having to, trying to answer your question, um, a career, like at least my career, but I think in general, most most of our careers, those of us who have continued to perform, is really just a sequence of of sort of interconnected gigs, and you tend to beget the next gig in some way from the previous one. So networking is very uh, critical component. Oh yeah, once in a while you might you might be able to steer your career in a certain direction by pushing for a given market or, or a genre. But at least in my experience, I've had to be very reactive over the years and, and kind of gone with where the opportunities made themselves known. And I always tried to work in the, uh, you know, in rehearsal and in the studio to try to make myself ready for when an opportunity might come up so that I can take it when it does, does happen. And at some point after about, I don't know, eight or 10 years, of working in festivals, doing comedy. Uh, I worked comedy clubs very briefly. I worked theme parks. I did ice shows. At some point, this the, my career took a, a sharp turn into the more serious and pretentious world of theatrical circus. And this was not anything I planned, but it's just something that kind of happened. Now, several decades later, I've kind of reflected I'm reflecting back on that transition and I'm trying to force my career back towards the thing that got me interested in the very first place, which was comedy and engaging the audience and, and making it far less serious and far less uh, arduous and bogged down in, in technique and all that stuff. Well, I think for those of us who came up through the 80s, we were also very reactive to what was available at the time. A lot of the, the venues that were open to us are no longer even existing. Oh, yeah. Like I know for us... Uh, of course, the Renaissance fairs are still a very valid market. That's how me and Barry started. But at a certain point, we wanted to not work outdoors anymore. Oh, and yeah, yeah. We're very much at the mercy of, especially like theme parks or street performing. Working outdoors for a juggler is a very difficult situation. I know you did theme parks. Would you think that's a good starting place for jugglers? And what do you learn from, from doing theme parks? Well, I, I quite enjoyed them. It's very uh, hard work in the sense that you do a lot of sets in front of the audience. Mm -hmm. It's very hard work in the sense that there's no money to be really made. It's, it's, it's just fine if you're a college student and you're doing something in the summer months. Uh, apart from a few very choice gigs in the, the biggest of Disney contracts, I don't know if anybody can really make a, a solid full-time living at a single theme park. There are clusters like... Uh, 
in uh, the L.A. area, there are several theme parks all in one area. Of course, in Florida, there are several all clustered together. And I know performers that work in those markets, and they basically hop from one park to the, to the other and are able to work in areas where theme parks are not seasonal. They run year-round. And those guys are, are able to, to make a career out of it. But the, the places I always worked were seasonal. They only ran in the summer months, and the pay was not was not enough to make it a sustainable thing, but it certainly was a great place to practice, to try stuff out, to just go and enjoy a summer with uh, other people, who uh, like-minded people in variety performing. At the time, I was happy to just, just do anything. Yeah, my first job, I was uh, 17, 18, around there. I worked a summer at Six Flags Magic Mountain uh, back in the L.A. area, and I was doing eight half an hour sets a day. I do half an hour on, half an yep. hour off. And I went from knowing nothing. I think my uh, mother had made me some performing pants that kind of looked like pajamas. So that was not, yeah. not a great start. But then you did like, I did a lot of line relief, which was really helpful for me. That's where you would entertain people as they waited for the roller coasters. Yep. And since the line was continually moving, I was able to do the same thing like over and over again. Yep, yep, and, absolutely. Uh, I also learned how to hide which was a very good skill. No one really ever <laughs> right. paid attention to me. So there definitely were half an hour where I was supposed to be working that maybe I was backstage reading a book. <laughs> because oh, yeah, yeah. you really had, no, you had yeah. to pace yourself. Oh, yeah. No, no. I remember first summer I, I worked at uh, Bush Gardens in Virginia. There was this mime there. He, 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 the way he, the, he would hide, he was a classic white face with suspenders, striped shirt. This would have been 1984, I think. He would do one of his sets by going to one of the shops in the part of the, the park that was themed France. And they sold dolls in this shop. It was just a big doll shop. And he would go and climb into the window. <laughs> right. Put a sign on his chest that said free and then he'd take a nap. Yeah. And it, it was beautiful. He would just lie there with his eyes closed and actually go to sleep. And he'd gather a small crowd outside of the window, wondering if that was a real person or if it was, you know, a doll with all the other dolls around him. Yeah, I remember I got Very paid, funny. Uh, $80 a day. I got uh, $10 an hour. And I believe that the pay, and here it is like 30 some odd years later, would still probably be about $80 a day. Quite possibly. Yeah. But like you Quite say, possibly. at a certain point, I think every good juggler has some gig where you do a lot of shows. Oh, and you know, there are lots of reasons to take a gig besides the bottom line. Oh, sure. I mean, I'm, const I'm constantly doing that. And if that's, if that's what you want to do, then I, I have no qualms doing free shows. I have no qualms working for not much money. Of course, you can't do that forever if you're trying to keep yourself going or, or pay for a family, that sort of thing. But there are all sorts of reasons to want to do a gig besides just the paycheck. We earn money to have experiences I mean, and to do things that are enjoyable. So if I was willing to pay money to like go to an IJA convention and then they were offering me one for free, it's like, well, that I would have made money to spend money on that experience. So that's why I'm making money in the first place. So if I can do something I enjoy and at least even break even, I can justify right. it if that's what I want to do. Well, I, I loved the performing experience at the theme parks. I remember having these big circle show crowds of hundreds of people, and it was just an electrifying and inspirational sort of sort of freedom. And you, like you said, you're doing half-hour sets every hour, one right after another. You don't even wait for the sweat to dry. Well, the best thing I find is when you have a situation where you try something one show, and then you can kind of build on that experience the next show. Go, oh, that worked. Let me try that again. Yep. Yep. 
And then we try it again. And by the end of the day, you're like, oh, I tried this joke five times in five different ways. And like I said, I went from basically zero. I remember one of my tricks was I would spin a pillow on each finger and lay a banana across my eyes. Like the banana was supposed to be like new wave sunglasses. And then I would spin a, like a, a small couch pillow on each finger and stuff like that. What was I thinking? <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> and so by the end, I actually could hold a crowd and build a crowd. Right. And no, that's what it's about. I mean, for me, I remember the very first, first day of theme park work, I showed up and I had a very, very uh, vivid image in my mind of what it should be like, even though I'd not been there. I'd seen pictures in that juggler's world magazines that I'd, I'd been getting every few months you know i was supposed to go out on the sidewalk and entertain the crowd i was supposed to wear pants and suspenders and have a little t-shirt maybe a little cap and i show up for my first day of work and my costume has tights and this sort of pseudo techno medieval themed tunic and it was acid green like lime green racing stripes and I was horrified. I saw that costume and I put it on and looked at myself in the mirror and I could not get myself to leave the dressing room. I was so mortified in the idea of having to wear this, this abomination <laughs> in public for a whole summer just, just tortured me. But I sucked it up and I kind of came to the conclusion that, okay, if you're going to have to go out there like this, you're going to have to go out and you're going to have to be really big. You're going to have to be really brash and really assertive, bordering on aggressive. At the time, Robert Nelson had, had been around and I'd seen him at the juggling festivals and had seen aggressive right. and how effective it could be to sort of counteract that that juggler stigma that the tights and the funny little hat that they had me wear it's almost a gesture hat and so uh yeah i i I went out and i was much much louder much much bigger more more reactive to the audience than i ever would have been and and it simply came from that initial impulse from from this this horrendous costume yeah it's funny what people think us jugglers should wear like when me and Barry started, we had a, a manager or an agent. Her name was Simone Finner. And she worked with a lot of old school acts like Nino Fradiani, I think Dick Franco when he started. And her idea was this sort of one-piece jumpsuit. Like, like Oh, yeah. And so, Oh, those were beautiful. Yeah. So the first couple of years we worked, <laughs> even though we were doing comedy juggling, she dressed us like as these circus jugglers in these one-piece right. blue and white as if we were stepping off the stage right. at the ice capades. Yeah, did you have the rhinestone starburst? Oh on your yes, back? oh yes. Oh hell yeah, I had one of those. <laughs> the zip mine, up the front. Mine had uh, mine had fluorescent spikes coming up the the legs and the arms. Big deep chest cut. The hair. Oh, it was beautiful. That was a piece of work. I remember we were doing a job at uh, Harvey's in Lake Tahoe. It was our first like review show job. And one day I had forgotten. We only had one of the jumpsuits each. So, you know, you'd wear it for five or six days in a row. So it got a little bit ripe. One day I had forgotten it. And uh, there was a, a, a fellow, a singer in the show about my size. So I borrowed some of his like leather pants and this cool shirt. And yet Barry still wore his jumpsuit. I remember how good I felt and how much how much grief I gave Barry, like making fun of him for his suit. And yet, yet the next day, what was I wearing again? My right. blue and white sequin jumpsuit. It took us like two years. Right. And you know, a lot of times I, I talk about before where you get advice from people who have been in the job before you, and they're not trying to give you bad advice. 
They're just giving you kind of dated advice. Of course, of course. So, so let's 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 seg let's use that as a segue okay. then. Sure. All right, a segue to I guess I guess I would say being honest on stage. Like, really, what are you telling? the audience when you go out with your act or as part of a show or your character or whatever, mm -hmm. what, what are they seeing and what are they really thinking about it? And that's, that's a, that's a bit of a tough puzzle to, to be honest with yourself and honest with the audience and really come to terms with the messages you're communicating to them. Are you saying sort of being aware of what they're thinking versus what you think they're thinking, that type of thing? Yeah, and that's that's certainly part of it. But just the messages you send, even to the point where you guys come out in your, you know, in your sequin jumpsuits, what sort of expectation do you set up in the first few seconds you walk on stage to the audience when they see that? And how, how is that received? And of course, it depends on the venue, it depends on the audience, and it depends on the time. Times change, styles change, expectations certainly change. Yeah, that's why I still think it's also so important to sort of create your own material. Because if you're going out there doing someone else's material, you're not being honest with yourself. You're not really being honest with the audience. You're not really showing them yourself. You're, you're, right. making, you're making sacrifices for the commercial world to maybe have more success. But you're not really being an artist in, the, in terms of expressing yourself and what you want to express. Even as a juggler, you can express your own story, your own honesty. And really, it's just not that difficult to write new material. <laughs> it's not even that difficult to take a, a, a joke that is done a certain way the same time. And then yeah. going, at least let me make a change. It could be the same joke, but why do I have to say it like word for word? I remember one time I was working and there was a girl... Uh, a woman who was a, a street performer. I think she's long gone from the scene. And she would do a joke like she would do a throw under the leg and go, jugglers call this trick painful. You know, sort of making a crotch-related joke. Right. And I'm saying, you can't do that joke. Right. <laughs> but she had heard it, and she'd heard another juggler right. to laugh with Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And sometimes people aren't even aware of why is this joke supposed to be funny. Yeah, being being honest, at least with your your desire to say, I think what I can create is as good as what's been created before, I should at least sink or swim yeah. with my own my own vision. Well, and you know, uh, the, the the honesty issue c crosses several different uh, uh, facets of the work, whether it be plagiarism, whether it be uh, being honest with your own personal desires, what you want to get out of the experience, being honest with the audience, and what you think they want to get out of the experience versus what they actually want, and in reality dealing with the the producer of the show and being honest with them because they're the ones who ultimately pay the, the check. So they sign the check at the end. They're not there as the audience. You do have to answer to them in many markets. Well, I think, though, also, when I started, there was a certain idea of what success was as a juggler, where it's like, oh, you should be working like Las Vegas review shows because that's what the top guys are doing at that time. But nowadays, you could say, like, I really want to entertain kids. I really want to do family shows. What I really like to do is do libraries or whatever you're honestly feeling. It doesn't mean that's less successful than someone doing a show like a cruise ship and saying, oh, I'm working cruise ships, but I'm hating it. I think you have to be honest about what you – I always take it down to the same word, which is lifestyle. What kind of lifestyle do you want to achieve as a professional juggler? Some people don't want to leave home. Some people don't want to be away for months away from their families or relationships. 
Other people want the travel. So you have to be honest, yep. like, what do I want to be a, a kid's entertainer? Is that really what I want to do? And is this less valid than being a guy who works at the Lido de Paris or, or works with Cirque du Soleil? We all have our right. different terms of what success is as a juggler. Right. No, I, I, I spent a good part of my last two summers working uh, state fairs. <laughs> I had a great time. I thought they were awesome. Yeah, I've never done that too much. I always think of it <laughs> really as kind of a, a hard gig. Do you feel that? It is a hard gig and it smells like cheap <laughs> and the food is miserable and it's hot and sunny and you're on a parking lot and the audiences are very lowbrow. They're even lower than theme parks. But I had a great time and I was out for months. I did uh, half a dozen state fairs where we were in one place for two or three weeks and Part of it was the, the group of people I got to perform with. They were they were a great group to, to work with and we were on our own so we had to we had to deal with issues every every day and uh, it was it was a, a reminder to me how well suited I am for this business when I can go back and do state fairs and then re-sign again for the next year because it was so great and then still enjoy it. But were you with that, a, that, a, that a trooper by yourself? I think there's a big difference if you I was with a group. Yeah. I was with a group. Yeah, so I think it's a big difference yeah, of course. working because when you're by yourself, because I've done obviously the Raspini Brothers for many years, and now these last eight years I've done more solo work, it's a big difference being out by yourself. Like I was just at the Oklahoma Arts Festival, staying at a, a hotel. It was called the American, like American. Oh, yes, I've stayed at American. Oh, have you? <laughs> oh, yes. And there were times I would go back to this American and say to myself, how early can I go to sleep? Like 8.30, <laughs> right. is that too early to go to sleep? It was so dull that I would look at it and go, you know, also, I think it's also important, though, is this idea of sometimes you have to be able to embrace the suck. You yep. know what I mean? Like, like, like some, you, sometimes I do a gig, it's so bad. With, oh, yeah. No, when you have other people with you and you can all embrace the suck together, boy, that 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 makes it – it's a bonding thing. It helps. Like I just got back from Ireland. I did this thing called Festival of the Fools. And like mm -hmm. the weather was pretty bad. It was raining almost every day. Technically, they had lots of problems with the sound, you know, with the microphones. I didn't think my schedule was so good. I had a great time, <laughs> you know. So it was really, it's really your mindset in this idea of being able to enjoy the experience as memorable, good or bad. I mean, a bad experience could be super memorable. Every gig comes down to the details. Little tiny details can make or break the experience for you and for the audience. And I guess if I could if I could think of something, some message I wanted to communicate to the performers or part-time performers or aspiring performers in the IJA, it's not to poo-poo any markets to not not be snobbish about any opportunities because every performance opportunity that you have to get in front of any kind of an audience has potential to be a memorable experience it has the potential to be a significant experience and yeah when we kind of think about careers and big picture hand waving sorts of things but when it gets right down to it the career is just a sequence of gigs that come one comes right after another and each of them has their own beautiful moments and each of them has their own moments of, of despair and and tragedy <laughs> no, well said because i remember this one fella years ago and he's like Oh, I won't do this. I won't do that. No, I don't. I won't work the street. No, that's not enough money. Right. And yeah. of course, well, I won't go out of the house out. for less than this much. I mean, he dropped out, and there and the people who are going well. 
Sometimes it's like this, sometimes it's like this. Sometimes you get the bear, sometimes the bear gets you. It's a, it's a series of peaks and valleys. And even the valleys, as a professional juggler, you're still a professional juggler. And what's better than that? The, the audiences enjoy it. The audiences are empathetic. That is, they, they feel your emotion. All you have to do is bring that you know, positive emotional experience to the stage, and they're going to respond positively. And ultimately, that's what I want. There's one experience you did on your resume, and I've seen it on several people's resume, which was opening for John Cougar Mellencamp. Is there a time that he wanted jugglers to open for him? Because I've seen a lot of guys that opened John Cougar Mellencamp in big, yeah, big so rock show environments. Yeah, there was there was one tour that he did. They had like accordion folk music starting the show. And there was this notion of having somebody come out and do some juggling, very folksy sort of vibe. And they wanted all the jugglers to, to dress in black and have white face, traditional oh, white okay. face to do their act. That way they could swap people out as the tour traveled the country. Mm -hmm. Mellencamp is from my hometown. And so when he played Southern Indiana and Kentucky, he did a whole bunch of shows. I think I did like 20 different uh, performances with him on that tour. It, the, the reason that it uh, is, is an intriguing experience for me was because it was such large audiences and there was such a false expectation when I stepped on the stage, because when I initially, I remember taking the taking the gig and agreeing to do it and thinking, oh, yeah, they're going to have me go out 15 minutes before the show and just sort of do some ambient sort of thing. No, no, no. The show was at 8 o'clock, and that was when I started. So the lights change, the music comes on, and everybody's expecting Mellencamp. And then here comes this freaking mime, <laughs> walks on stage, and starts juggling. And I remember thinking, oh, my Lord, talk about, talk about not being able to deliver on a promise. This is rock and roll in his home state. And here I am, and I have to do it in white face. And it's not, there's no real comedy involved in, in this case. I have to just rely on straight technique. And it's for, you know, 15,000 people. And so some of them are way in the back. And this is before they had the, the big screen TVs or any of the technical support. So vi visually, I had to choose very large things. I worked with soccer balls. I had uh, a, a big three-wheeled uh, stacked giraffe unicycle that I used. But it was, a, it, was a really, it was a really positive experience in that I, <laughs> I remember the stage manager coming to me after I'd done a few shows and, and saying, you know what? You're the best one we've ever had. We liked you. <laughs> and that was kind of a, a, a good feeling because I was working in this, this vacuum where I would go out and you'd start doing something and you'd finish and then you'd turn to go get your next thing. And there was such a delay on the, the audience response that then, then you'd hear them applaud and cheer and kind of go... <sighs> yeah, I wasn't really in tune with how to work for audience that large and working on the stage and there's all these microphone stands and drum sets behind you there's wires and cables everywhere it's very rock and roll so there are lots of obstacles i was always afraid of losing something off the edge of the stage and having somebody in the audience keep it stuff like that but they were very receptive and they were very good and i actually got really good responses from them and they had me back like i said i think i did about 20 20 different shows with them but you had experienced before with uh, big audiences because was this before or after you did uh, the color guard shows with the Star of India? Yeah, it was, or, it Star, was Star of uh, Indiana, was, not India. I'm sorry. Yeah, Star of Indiana. It was a, a drum and bugle corps that I, I, I traveled around one season with. Way back, I guess I was 21. Yeah, I was 21 then, so that was uh, 38 years ago, almost 40 years ago. And that was part and, of your uh, college yeah, we, experience. Yeah, yeah, I was in college at the time. 
And then you went and you went uh, back. You got a. uh, It said you had a BA in variety theater. Is that a? No, you can study variety theater. (laughs) Well, Indiana University, and they still have this. They have an the individualized major program, which is a program where you can create your own curriculum. And I basically did a degree, a bachelor of arts degree in. Variety theater, which incorporated traditional theater, but it also incorporated music and and, uh, a lot of classes from like the ballet and opera department, as well as uh, gymnastics and some physical workshops that I took uh, off off campus. So, yeah, I, I actually intended to use the university as a vehicle to get me to become a uh, glorified street performer. Now, you, like you were talking before, you kind of had these, all these different experiences. Now, was the transition into theatrical circus based on your audition with Michael Motion for that initial Cirque uh, production that you did? Well, Fritz Groba and I had worked together for a couple of years, and we were doing variety theater type stuff mm-hmm. in, in Indiana, little sh- a, a little black box type show. Uh, it was called, boy, what was it called? Uh, theater Bizarro. That's right. And could you, could you explain was, for the people listening what you mean by black box theater? Yeah, black black box theater is a very simple form. Uh, it's, tip, typically, it's called a black box because it's, it's usually a, a theater that has no distinguishing characteristics. It's literally the walls are painted black, the ceilings the ceilings black, the floor is black. There's typically not a set. Oftentimes, it's an immersive environment where the audience is wrapped in a full 360 around the play space. It was a genre that became popular, started in the 60s and continues to be popular today because it strips away all of the, the uh, pomp and circumstance of a traditional proscenium-based theater that you might imagine with the curtain, the archway, and the seats all pointing. Uh, we were working working on trying to find this new vaudeville vibe that we had picked up at our workshops that we'd taken together at the Celebration Barn Theater from guys like Fred Garbo. And at that point, this was a year after... Michael Motion was the invited guest to the IJA Festival in Montreal. Mm-hmm. And anybody who went to that festival will remember his his talk to the jugglers there and how passionate, I will say, mm-hmm. it became. I was, at the time, we went to that festival in Montreal as a group, uh, Fritz and my wife and I and a couple of other friends. And I was really working on trying to cre- be creative and do new stuff and try new things. But I was, I was walking around with the same kit that everybody else had. I had a big old duffel bag with juggling clubs and balls and rings and cigar boxes and devil sticks, all the stuff that I'd been working with for several years doing theme parks and all these festivals. And Michael Motion gave this this speech, this very impassioned speech, and it, it really kind of boiled down to his views on creativity, on intellectual property, ownership of concepts and techniques and plagiarism. And at the end of the talk, there were several heated sort of arguments and I remember walking out of the uh, uh, the auditorium where, where it was like a gym, multi-purpose room, and going back into the main gym. And I genuinely was mad at him. I was really frustrated with with Motion for being such a jerk to the to the group. He was the invited guest, and he basically came and scolded us all and told us how 
worthless we were. And on the other hand, I remember thinking that he was right and that I, I hated the fact that I thought he was right, but that if I was ever going to do anything different, I had to force myself into these these places that he was talking about where you, you have to create your own work, your own techniques, your own style. And at that point, I walked around the gym and I gave away all of my props. Hmm. I gave away all my clubs. I mean, you know, it was a lot of money invested as, <laughs> as most as most IJA jugglers know. You show up with a whole lot of money invested in your kit. Sure. They're all shiny. You've got different colors. You've got different shapes and weights and sizes. And I forced myself by walking around the gym and to all my friends and saying, here, you want these clubs? You want these boxes? I'm just giving it all away. I don't want it anymore because every time I go into a rehearsal, I always fall back to the same things. I pick up three clubs. I always fall back to the same things. I pick up the cigar boxes. So after the festival, I went home and I started working on some new stuff. I started trying to develop my own techniques. Why this is relevant is that a year later, I read a post on Rectot Juggling, the old juggling news group, that a company called Cirque du Soleil is looking for a third person to be in a group act, and the choreographer of the act is Michael Motion. Wow. I did not want to work in the circus. Right. I was not the least bit interested in circus, but Michael Motion, as a creator, to work under him as a choreographer, that was an opportunity that I wanted to. And they were looking for particular person. body types, too. Like, they wanted yeah, tall people. The way that... The way that the uh, the job post read, I looked at it and immediately said, you know, that's me. They needed to be over six feet tall, have uh, uh, certain techniques, have some experience in dance or martial arts or acrobatics. And the list went on and I read through it. And I was like, oh, wow, that is so me. And then I, I got an audition with Michael where they flew me to New York and I had to meet with him face-to-face -face and show him some of my work. And what I showed him was a ball routine of ball rolling. Very simple technique. But it was the routine that I wrote right when I got back from the festival and forced myself to write something new. And that was the routine that made full circle. Went back to him. He liked it. And ultimately, he chose me for the act that then landed me with uh, Pat and Pat McGuire and Jean Bernard as part of the trio in Cirque du Soleil's new show at the time, in 1992, Mystere, that was opening in Las Vegas. Now, I talked to Pat about his experience. What would you say you learned from Michael Motion as a director? Were there any thoughts or, or direction he gave you that kind of stuck with you all, all these years? Absolutely. I mean, singular, singularly, apart from maybe my high school drama coach, he's the most influential person in my understanding of juggling and taking that technique and bringing it to the stage. He was not an easy person to work for or under, but we got along very well because I was willing immediately to submit and place him in the role of choreographer-director and simply try to answer to his to his needs when he would bring up bring up issues and, and respond well to his creation. Plus, I completely embraced the idea of performing somebody else's techniques. Well, in that particular case, we were doing this act with this big curved metal thing. Mm -hmm. Big curve, like a big taco chip, they called it. We rolled a ball around it, and it was a technique that he developed very, very uh, exclusively. And in the very beginning, he said, okay, you're learning this technique to do this act. I'm not teaching you something that you're going to use for your whole career. And I, I stuck with that. And I did that act with... I, under Michael's guidance and Cirque du Soleil's ownership for six years and did about 
2,000 different shows, uh, performances with it. And at the end of that, la- of that last one, when Pat and I finally closed the act off, I took the shape, I put it in the box, I've never touched it since. It was all I did for six years. I did no toss juggling, I didn't do any of the other techniques, so I simply had to focus on this one technique that Michael Motion had developed. And then when that period was done, it went away. Mm. And I haven't, I haven't touched it. So there, there is no expectation of, oh, yeah, I've got this act that I, I, I know how to do. I mean, I still know how to do it. And I'm sure if I picked it up now, apart from some muscle development that I'd have to regain, I'm sure I could do it. And there's only one other guy on the planet that can do those tricks like me, and that's Pat McGuire. Right, right. <laughs> now, did you then read, because you yeah. had a tour, and then you took some time off, and then they asked you to do it again in a different production. Is that correct? Yeah. I remounted um, the touring show, which is Kidam, as a soloist several years later with a jug- with my juggling act, which the uh, many of the people in the IGA will have seen a couple of times mm-hmm. now. With the large red balls and the suitcase yeah in fact that that act was developed for that Cirque du Soleil show because the act with the shape was being phased out Pat wanted to leave and I couldn't do it as a solo so I tried to put together this proposal based on one of the show's main characters the father and the father has a bowler hat he has a briefcase and he has this umbrella and so I was trying to integrate my ball manipulation and ball juggling with those three props and that was the act that came out of that which eventually got me back into Kidam as a soloist playing the role of the father who then does the struggling act and I did that for a while and then I laughed and I came back and I laughed and now actually I've come back for one last time the show has been running for 19 years non-stop i started the show in 96 and assuming everything goes as planned i will close the show in 2016 yeah because they're actually phasing out this production this is the last year of this particular this is the last year of kidam as we know it yes so for the people who are who you know obviously seen cirque productions and have thought about working with cirque or dreamed about working with cirque can you give us sort of like the what's that game the high low bane crush surprise yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you do that about, about Cirque du Soleil for us? What, sure. What's the high? Sure, okay. The high is it's exactly as romantic as you think it is. In, in what way? Absolutely. Just the travel, the, the, the experience? The travel, people, the almost celebrity status. Like it, it elevates you as a as a variety performer, as a circus artist, just about as high as you can get. There are, there are some markets, there are some shows that I think would elevate you a little bit higher. But as far as general public wow factor yeah Cirque du Soleil is very good the lows I would say is that it's it's a marathon it is arduous and there are so many performances I'm I'm clocked I've clocked in about 3,200 to date mm. it's difficult sometimes to hear that music so is this the repetition <laughs> factor is that something there's a repetition factor that you get nowhere else right the shows are long. An individual performance may last two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. It's arduous. That's that's the hard part of it. You're throughout the whole show. Yeah, yeah. I play a, a character in the show currently, and my act is actually a, the backup act. It's a rotation number now. But that suits me just fine at this point in my life because I don't I don't know if I would actually physically capable of doing full time act every night anymore. You know, the, the the kids who are in the show who are working the the, the more difficult technical acts are in their 
teens and twenties. So they're they're in their prime, and I'm I'm now a character. Right. Okay. <laughs> I'm there to add to add finesse. <laughs> the low is the repetition and the yeah. grind. What's next? The bane, I guess, is the bane. The bane is in, in injuries, man. Yeah. We we get asked about injuries in, in interviews and Q and A's all the time, and and people are always asking about injuries in Cirque du Soleil, and they think about catastrophic injuries, but the reality is. That catastrophic injury happens so rarely. Like, I've never actually experienced one in any of the shows I've been in, thank God. But I experience repetitive injury, low-grade injuries like rolled ankles or arthritis or uh, muscle strains or, you know, pinched vertebrae. I experience those on a daily basis, and those are the things that just wear you down. Mm. That, and they sneak up on you, and they will they will change your they're, they're life altering in many ways. I mean, I I've got my my right knee, my left ankle, my left elbow is in horrible shape. Well, that's what I kind of think like with Gatto. Like I don't know, I haven't talked to him about it, but imagine like the show he did, like that level of technical juggling, that many shows, yeah. the toll it must have taken on on his body. Going out there to juggle is hard. Going out there to juggle like oh, when yeah. your back hurts or your neck is stiff or your arm hurts. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, you have to do it. The difference between amateur and professional. Amateur gets to do it when he feels like it. Professional gets to do it when the producer feels yeah. like it. And so if you're not if you're not on, you still do yeah. it. And Anthony, you know, the, the, he, he's, a, he's a tank. And the technical level of his act is so far beyond me as, I, as when I tell people. Because both of us worked at Cirque du Soleil. We both had solo acts. We were both jugglers. But the reality of it is that Anthony Gallo actually starts his act with my finale track. Right, right. <laughs> I finish my act with a five-ball cascade. He starts his with a five-ball cascade and goes up from there. So, yeah, the, the, the physical strain and the, and the athleticism that that guy had to have and still does. Sure. Have. Would you agree that his act was probably, I, I, this is my opinion, the greatest technical act ever performed as a from a juggler? Cer certainly in the realm of traditional techniques. Yeah, toss, yes. the toss juggling. Yeah, if you're going to say toss juggling and you want to classify sort of traditional, traditional techniques, head bouncing, balls, clubs, rings, pirouettes, half pirouettes, those sorts of things, bar none, yeah. and reliable. Like, that's the thing. It's not just... Can he do it? It's that he does it every time. That that's amazing. And you know, he 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 obviously is very proud of that, and he obviously has great integrity behind his technique, in such that he actually kind of bowed out when he felt like he wasn't able to to maintain it. And that's something on, on a personal level I really admire because I haven't had that luxury. I'm I'm still going, and I I'm feeling my tech technical level as I age diminish. Like every year, it slips more and more and more. And I'm still going. I'm, and I'm going to be taking gigs as long as they'll hire me. Well, it's like the comedy <laughs> juggler. Like someone asked me the other day, like, how are you, How do your hands feel after 40? Like I juggled, I learned when I was 13, 14. So I've been juggling 40 years. And I'm like, well, you know, my style of juggling, I really feel as if the show aspect of it is as good or better than and whenever I when I started or when I was 20, maybe I was a better juggler. Like I could do seven balls or five clubs, but being a comedy juggler, I have not experienced any of the repetitive injuries that right. someone like a Gatto would experience. Right. Cause it's not just the performance it's the practice necessary to maintain that oh, yeah. performance. And it's the environment. If you've got a good place to train, if you've got good resources to warm up and, and you're in good 
good conditions, then that helps dramatically. If you've just gotten off a plane and you got to pull it out of your uh, your kit bag and make it work, then that actually, it does damage. It does. So anyway, I've got a couple more criteria sure. left. One of them is crush. Yeah. Crush easily. The other performers, I love the people and the employees at Cirque du Soleil are great. The other performers are amazing. They're, they're some of my, my best friends in the world. They're, I, I get to hang out with very pretty people. Sure. Very athletic. <laughs> if you could set, oh yes, very, they're be- they are beautiful people. If you could send a photograph of me with my friends back to younger me in high school, I would have just been in, like amazed. <laughs> like, oh my God, that's me in, in 30 years. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my Lord. Sure. Okay, so we'll ignore the fact that I'm wearing lipstick in the photo. But apart from right, that, right, 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 right. Everyone else in the photo are gorgeous. Sure. <laughs> the surprise for me is getting to work with Cirque du Soleil on one more tour. And this year I will be on tour with Kidam and I will turn 50. I'll still be on stage. I'll still be out there kicking. I'm easily twice as old as most of the other performers. <laughs> and that, that's, that, that, that's a surprise to me because I really thought when I left the show six years ago that that was my last, my last time and this opportunity came up. I'm very proud of myself for passing the audition yet one more time. Very proud of myself for uh, get, getting the gig when there were younger more agile, better jugglers in competition with me. So, yeah, that's that's my big surprise is that I'm still here. Now, do you feel that when you're with other performers, and I know I feel this, who are, who are quite a bit younger, do you still feel like contemporaries, though? It still feels like, well, we're doing the same job. Oh, yeah. And it does give you kind of an ageless feeling. Yeah. Everybody else around me has changed. I'm the same. Yeah, because you really feel like, well, I'm doing the same job as a 24-year-old. I mean, these other performers... They're doing the same job I'm doing. They were quite a bit younger, but I feel like we're all contemporaries. You don't feel like they treat you like, oh, you're the old man. It's like, no, you're doing what I'm doing. And I always feel like they treat me just like that I'm their age, even though I am old right. enough to be their father, right. probably. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Now, you also, you also work with other productions. I know you work with... Uh, is it Cirque Mechanique? Yeah, uh, Cirque Mechanics. Oh, okay, a, uh, I gave it the French. True case that. Oh, yeah, no. It's from the French-speaking part of Las Vegas, Nevada. There you go. There you go. Is it a much smaller production, a more personal production? Is there a big difference when you go to these, these smaller troops? Oh, sure. It's the antithesis of Cirque du Soleil, where Cirque du Soleil will solve a theatrical problem with high production values and lots of money. The small troops have to be clever and resourceful. Mm-hmm. Cirque Mechanics is a company based out of Las Vegas. It's run and owned by a single proprietor. His name is Chris Lashua. He's an old Cirque du Soleil veteran. Came from BMX bike competition way back in the early 80s. Really good guy. I, uh, really good guy to work for. Very very high integrity. Very honorable. Nice. His, show, his shows are, are fun. We toured a show called Birdhouse Factory for almost 10 years. We had another production called Boomtown that, that uh, went to about 100 or 120 different performing arts centers uh, internationally. There's a new production out right now. It's called Pedal Punk. It's currently on tour, and if anybody listening to this podcast sees that, come across their, their area. I highly recommend going and seeing it. It's a great group of, of young performers. The featured juggler in the uh, ensemble is Jan Dam, mm. doing uh, a whole bunch of good character work. 
a nice Diablo act and a rollerball act. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Giannis. I can't recommend. I think him. he's good character, good presence, a real nice guy, and a real solid. Uh, yeah, you know, he he beat me out for that spot. That was that was the spot I wanted. Yeah, he he beat me out for it, and he's it's, it's justified. I have to concede to his enthusiasm and his physicality because, damn it, he looks good on stage. A lot, a lot of charisma, <laughs> you know. What I mean, he's got that. Uh... He does. He's got heart. He's got heart. I did a lot of the writing for the show, wrote uh, a couple of the acts, and uh, Jan was real easy to work with. I'm quite pleased with how the show the, the show turned out. Even even if it's the first it's the first Cirque Mechanics production that I have not toured with as a performer. So I'm giving it a plug in spite of the fact that I'm not actually getting to be on stage with those guys. And uh, speaking of writing, let's sort of we're getting towards the end. Let's try to end with some advice for this is this is for the IJ. It's for jugglers who maybe they're starting their careers, maybe they're they're in the midst of their careers. You'd written with something recently very interesting about, I guess you would you would call it stage fright or or stage apprehension. What do you think is the best way to deal with these situations where let's say haven't done your act for a little bit, like you say your relief act with Cirque, maybe you haven't done it. For, for a week or two weeks, all of a sudden they need you to fill in. Here's your chance. Maybe the producer's in the audience or some celebrity. Or How do you deal with those moments and right. what's your advice for people who might be on live TV or facing this situation where, okay, you're not in an amateur situation. You're juggling to the full degree of what a professional juggler means in these high-pressure situations. All right. To summarize it, I would say be kind to yourself. Whatever that means, mm. and that's really difficult to do, but be kind to yourself. Allow yourself the freedom to feel the feelings that you're feeling and not get worked up about it. I have always been very tense. I have always been very emotionally driven, and I have a very short temper. These are things that do not help when you're on stage and have always been a victim to stage fright. I tried many different techniques from simple breathing to visual visualization to excessive practicing even medication meditation all sorts of asians although they they have helped over the years to differing degrees the single thing that has helped me more than all of them together is acceptance is the understanding that when i'm standing backstage before any show and if i'm feeling the fear, and I'm feeling the, the stomach dropping out, and I'm feeling my vision going into tunnel vision and the ears ringing, to accept that and to tell myself, you know what, you felt like this the last thousand times you did this mm -hmm. show. You're probably going to feel like this the next thousand times. You haven't died yet. <laughs> Most of the time, the act is fine. Yeah. You, you, it, might, it might go wrong this time. It really might. There's always that possibility. But it probably won't. And mostly, just accept the fact that when you go on stage, you're going to feel that way. Because what was getting me was the spiral. The, you feel the fear, and it's a physiological response. And your hands, I don't know how they sweat and are cold at the same time, but they do. And then, then you start to worry about being afraid and that makes it worse and it just starts this cycle and the only thing that i have ever found to break that cycle is to literally tell myself it's okay you feel like crap every time you go on stage and yet you've done it over and over and over a single technique a single technique i'll pass mm -hmm. along is the last 10 seconds before you walk on stage even if your character doesn't smile big smile on your face and stand up straight 
when you smile, it feels better. You have to understand it's normal. That's I mean, it. the idea that I feel tense, I feel nervous. And like you said, you go, oh, you go through these patterns. Like one of my patterns is to sort of diminish the importance of the job in my mind. I go, well, there's no producer here or well, there's no, none of my friends are here or nobody's going to see this or even if it goes badly, nothing bad's going to happen. So I tried to diminish the importance, which is not really the best strategy. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> there, are, there are always strategies that don't work, like imagining the audience completely naked and then you go out there and find out they you know, they put the kids in the first three Yeah, months. not appropriate. <laughs> I always say, though, <laughs> it doesn't help. The one tool I learned was just because you're nervous doesn't mean you have to act like you're nervous. If you're, if you're pacing, if you're like being a dick to everybody around you because you're in this weird mindset of, oh, I'm about to perform, therefore I'm all rocked with, with tension and, and whatever, but you're acting like a real, like the, the, the energy around you is just so like, hey, take it easy. You know, internally you can be a mess, but outside you could be like, it's all good, fine. That way the producer's not nervous, your other performers aren't nervous. And it becomes more of an individual thing as opposed to something you're imposing on everybody around you. Well, I, I would hope that I don't project my anxiety onto my peers, especially in the show. It's something I've worked on over the years. I've gotten a bit better over it. There have been times in my career where, where, that I'm, I'm quite embarrassed about. Some of my behavior backstage has not been, shall we say, stellar. Uh, we learn. We learn, like they say, that that's something that's important yeah. is that it's a group ensemble. It's, it's an experience of everybody oh, working yeah. together. And there are times I've been more, a little bit shut off and kind of abrupt. And I felt like it, wouldn't, it didn't help. It didn't help my performance to kind of act in a jerky manner. So have fun. You know what else I do? I've said I give myself a mulligan. You know the golf term, the mulligan? Right. Like me and Barry, we've done so many shows that I think have gone well. That even if we have one show that totally tanks, I think in my mind they'll go, okay, that was our mulligan. We get one of those. Right. We get one where, where the yeah. audience or the producer is unhappy because we never really let anybody down. So you get a mulligan. Right. If you have a couple mulligans in a row, well, maybe you need to think about a different uh, career. Right, right. But everybody gets at least a mulligan. Yeah, yeah we, we used to talk about having to give the money back. Right. You finish the show and you ask your partner, so you get to keep the money? <laughs> like, yeah, I get to keep the money. Okay, great. And then it was good. What really helped me was an interview with Jonathan Winters, because we worked with him once uh, in a, a Showtime special. And it, uh, I think it was with Mark Marin. And Mark Marin asked him, like, what do you do if the magic isn't working? Because here you are doing this improv, and then there's times you're on, times you're off. And he said something very important. He goes, I still get the check. So even Jonathan Winters, there's times like, even if it doesn't work, sorry, I still get the check. It's not always going to be magic, but yet... It's like someone in any field, some guy, you know, doing the plumbing. Sometimes the plumbing's not going to work and he's going to do a bad job, still gets the check. I don't want to say we're glorified plumbers, but uh, we are professionals <laughs> in this business. And sometimes the magic escapes us. Hopefully, if you're at a certain level, you're always at least doing a professional job. I always, I always shoot for a B plus. Not never an A, but at least a B plus. And hopefully, right. we've had at least a B plus job on this podcast. I, I've been very... Uh, enthralled with what you had to say and hopefully our listeners will uh, enjoy the wisdom and the experiences that you've shared and I want to thank you so much okay, uh, is there thanks. anything to sum up or anything any final thoughts that you feel you'd like um, to impart no you know I'm a big fan of the IJA it's it's 
served me very well over the years. I've had some of my best memories in terms of performing for jugglers through the organization. And I would invite anybody listening to the podcast to contact me directly with any comments, questions, or if they just want to say, hey, I'm, on, I'm online on Facebook, um, through my website or wherever, and I try to stay in touch with uh, jugglers worldwide on a regular basis. Yeah, I think we're both very interested in mentorship. I know we're both uh, Bobby May Award winners. Is that correct? Right. Yes, Which means yes. that both myself and Steve, that we're available to any young jugglers, anybody who wants advice, whether it's on a contract or putting a show together, You're not for payment, but just to share what we feel is our experiences to, to help with this beautiful art that we all love, which is the art of juggling. Amen. Brother. Amen. All right. Hey, hey, thanks taking all this time from uh, all the way from Finland. But that's all we have now for the Drop Everything podcast number 16 with the great Steve Regatz. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 16, my conversation with Steven Regatz. A lot of great information, a lot of great experiences shared through the Drop Everything podcast. Thanks to our sponsor, the IJA, the International Jugglers Association. Information about this group, how to join, their annual festival, and all the great features of the IGA can be found at juggle.org. Thanks again to my engineer, Karen Holzman. Now go out there and drop everything except when you're juggling.